the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, what is the issue that's actually at the heart of the abortion debate? And then we're joined by Becky Murray, founder of a global missions organization called One by One. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. We've been talking a lot about abortion over the last couple of days. Uh, and, and Aubrey and I have been trying to talk about off of this, this new law that has been passed in Texas. Like, how is it? Why is it that we're passionate uh, pro-life, passionate about the abortion debate? And also, how should we talk about abortion with our friends, with our neighbors, uh, with people even online? And with that in mind, I want you to hear something that President Biden said when talking about the Texas law, which he labeled, quote, almost un-American. But I want you to hear something because I think it frames what's at the heart of the abortion um, debate, the, the differing views on abortion. Listen to what President Biden had to say. I, under, I respect people who think that who don't support Roe v. Wade. I respect their views. I respect them, they, those who believe life begins at the moment of conception. and all. I, I respect that. Don't agree, but I respect that. I'm not going to impose that on people. So again, President Biden said, I respect those who believe life begins at conception. I don't agree with it, but I respect it. That, my friends, is the heart of the abortion debate. When does life begin? And President Biden was very honest. He's saying what he believes. He says, I do not believe that life begins at conception. And so, therefore, my policies are going to mirror that, that if life begins, uh, you know, third trimester, if life begins after birth, then that's going to drive the way that we discuss the abortion debate. That's going to drive the policies that President Biden uh, and other people who share his worldview are going to um, are going to put forth. Now, for me, I believe uh, that life begins at conception. Jesus, uh, the, the Bible says uh, that God knit us together in our mother's womb, uh, that that life is, is not only lived outside the body, but, but that at the very beginning, as we are inside our mother's womb, that, that God has knit us together, that life is still um, lived in that moment. And so therefore, that drives the way people like me and others believe the policy should be made if that let's put it another way if that's just a clump of cells then uh we treat it as such uh and and that the laws treat it as such and then you would say no the law begins once this baby is born if you believe that that is a life uh within that mom's womb then we need to create laws and push to protect that vulnerable life 
therein lies the difference. And I think President Biden, he laid out the difference for us there. When is it that you believe life begins? If you believe life begins earlier than what President Biden says here, then that will drive your policies. That will drive your passions to say we must protect those babies who cannot protect themselves, as opposed to letting tens of thousands of babies be killed. If you believe like President Biden that, no, the ba- that, that baby does not have uh, rights or personhood until after they are born, then that will drive. And so I thought that that was a helpful clip. I think in amongst the debates, this begins to frame uh, the discussion. And it also frames what are the what are the responsibilities of the father? When do those responsibilities begin? This is not just a mom discussion. Uh, what about insurance and other things? This is far reaching, but at the heart of it again is when does life begin? And the second one I want to talk about has to do with COVID. And this is from uh, Representative Jim Jordan, I believe out of Ohio. And he was tweeting, there was a picture that a lot of people have seen going around from the Virginia Tech football game, just crowds and crowds of unmasked people. Now, what they don't tell you is that to go to Virginia Tech, you have to be vaccinated right now. But Uh, The point being that people are still gathering in crowds. And Jim Jordan tweeted this. Real America is done with COVID-19. God bless. I think this is terribly uh, unhelpful and just pandering. Because, again, you could be willing to be in a crowd of people. And that is your choice. You could be willing to be vaccinated, not vaccinated. But here's the deal for a representative to quote unquote say real America is done with COVID-19 while regardless of what you believe, people are still dying. People are still getting COVID-19. People are still struggling in, in even where Virginia, where this game was in the South, in the North, in all states right now. To say real America is done with COVID-19 is, uh, is dangerous and pandering because COVID-19, regardless of what you think about its dangers, is still here. So again, it doesn't mean that you need to live in a bubble. It doesn't mean we can't go on with our lives. It doesn't mean there's not a debate about how we should be uh, making policy and living our lives now. It's just extremely negligent and unhelpful for a representative uh, in the United States Senate to say real America is done with COVID-19. Does that mean that those who aren't done with COVID-19 are fake Americans? What exactly is he trying to say here? It's just unhelpful and it's just divisive. Again, we can disagree greatly about exactly the policies we should be having right now and the mandates and the masks and the vaccines. I've got different views than Aubrey. Aubrey's got different views than you out there. It all is different. But again, to say real America is done with COVID-19, in many ways, that tweet encapsulates all that is wrong with how people are talking about this in just a partisan way. And I think it should be rejected. Well, wanted to start there, but coming up next, I'm really excited to be joined by Becky Murray. She is the founder of a global missions organization that you are going to want to hear about. It's called One by One. They are doing amazing work across the globe, including in Afghanistan right now. Becky Murray is going to join us next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. 
And I am thrilled to be joined by the founder of the global missions organization called One by One and the co-author of a book called Embrace the Journey, all the way from across the pond, as we like to say. Uh, Her name is Becky Murray. Becky, how are you doing today? I'm great, Brian. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you. As I told you off air, I'm very jealous of your accent. So (laughs) really good to have you on. And with that in mind too, Becky, before we jump into your organization and your book, uh, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit better? Sure. So as you say, I'm from England. I'm from the north of England. So unfortunately don't sound quite like the queen, but anyway, um, I'm a big fan of coffee and a big fan of juices. And that pretty much sums me up. If you throw chocolate in there as well, that definitely sums up who I am. <laughs> the um, That's really good. <laughs> uh, so as we mentioned, Becky, you run an organization, you founded an organization called One by One. So let's just start there. Why don't you share about the work of One by One and maybe tell us a little bit of the story of why you founded this organization in the first place? Yeah, sure. So I was out in 2006 in Sierra Leone, and I was on a short-term missions trip with my local church. We were doing big gospel campaigns out there. And this particular day, I met a child who was living on the streets. Her name was Felicity, and she was nine years old. And I noticed she simply didn't have any shoes. So I took her to the marketplace and bought her a little pink pair of flip-flops that cost me 50 pence. So I'm guessing that's around 70 cents for you guys. Mm. So it wasn't some huge act of generosity. It was actually an insignificant moment, or so I thought. Mm-hmm. And then I said, okay, come back tonight and we can take you to the gospel campaign. Come here, all about this Jesus I've been telling you about. So the evening comes around and I'm stood outside the hotel waiting to go to the gospel campaign. And little Felicity comes running towards me and she's got this huge smile on her face because she's wearing shoes for the first time in her life. Mm. And she turned to me and she said, Becky, should I wait in the hotel? I said, no, we're literally just about to head out. And she said, yes, but shouldn't I wait in your hotel room? Now, if she'd have asked my husband or any of the guys on the team, I immediately would have known what she was asking. But I was in my early 20s at the time. And I remember looking at this nine-year-old girl thinking she couldn't possibly be asking me what I think. Mm. And so I asked her a third time. And sure enough, she thought that I'd spent 70 cents on her so that I could have her body. And she was willing to give it. Mm. And in a moment like that, I was so broken and so angry, not angry at Felicity, but angry at the injustice that as a nine-year-old living on the streets, she'd been so abused by both men and women that her mind would go there for the sake of a pair of flip-flops. And so I just made a promise in my heart, Brian. I, I promised myself and I promised God, I will give my life to this. Even if it's only ever for one child, I'm going to give my life to this. And so that's why we actually called the organization One by One. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that what a heartbreaking story that is. So, Becky, practically speaking, then what does one by one do? What What is it that you're doing in all of these places around the world? So we've got a large uh, center in Kenya, which is a large home for children and abandoned and orphan children, as well as schools and medical centers and churches. So that's a huge compound out in Kenya. We also run a safe house out in Pakistan where we rescue children out of slavery 
Mm. And then we also run an initiative that helps girls at risk of human trafficking. So with that, we've reached almost 20,000 girls so far. That is mind boggling. That is unbelievable. Now, you mentioned your work in Pakistan. Now, obviously, in the news right now is everything with Afghanistan and the Taliban. So uh, help us understand what's going on there and maybe what you guys are doing over there. Yeah, of course. So firstly, um, we started a safe house out there because we went over there for the first time in 2019. And I thought it was going to be a one off trip for the Dignity Project, which is the initiative that helps girls at risk of trafficking. And it was on that trip for the first time we went into the brick factories. And if I'm honest, I was completely ignorant about brick factories and bonded labor. I had no idea this existed. And the thing that shocked me is obviously my aspect of of slavery has always been from a human trafficking angle, Mm -hmm. which in human trafficking is all covered up. It's all hidden because everybody knows it's wrong. And yet here, these these people trapped in bonded labor it was so open so blatant it's not covered up it's not hidden i was freely allowed to walk through this factory full of literally hundreds of slaves and it blew my mind that that could even exist in our day and age in my mind slavery should have been abolished back in the days of william wilberforce Mm -hmm. and yet Mm -hmm. here we are still dealing with the same old issues And so we started a safe house out there for children that we've been able to to rescue out of slavery so that they're now getting full-time education and, you know, healthy diet and they've got their own bed to sleep in, all of which was very novel and new to these children. Um, But we actually started a second safe house right in the north of Pakistan. So this time it's right along the Afghanistan border. And even just getting there was interesting. My husband had to be smuggled in the back of a car. Um, His white skin had to be covered up with local clothing to try and disguise him. Um, But he was able to go right into the very north, which rarely has Westerners in. And that's when he met some little children that had already fled the Taliban. And this was back at the beginning of 2020. So just before COVID hit the world, my husband was right there. Mm. And we met some children that we were able to take into our home and they'd already fled Taliban once. And so already we've been aware of what the Taliban do and how children and families and and women in particular, how they live in that part of the world. We'd already kind of experienced that. And then obviously with everything now kicking off, we're now once again very much helping people who are refugees fleeing the nation which Mm. is totally out of our usual remit of what we do we predominantly work with children but I think when a need presents itself like that it's a case of okay what can I do right now to help what's in my hands right now to help and make a difference yeah again super inspiring Becky what's the biggest challenge for you guys not only in building your organization but in continuing your organization what are the challenges you face a lot of the time, it's, it's been a huge faith journey. So even this year, my big master plan was to ride out the storm of the pandemic. Uh, many of my donors have been made redundant around the world and all things like that. And so my master plan for this year was to ride out the storm, not take in any new children or any new staff, not start any big projects. And then this year, I received a phone call that a three-year-old had been raped and murdered in one of the brick factories. 
And in a moment like that, I know I have to respond immediately. I can't wait for COVID to be over. And so it's this constant faith journey of stepping out even before the resources are in. And then even now, so I'm doubling the size of our safe house. At the same time, I'm helping all these refugees that aren't ordinarily in my care. And it's constantly a case of stepping out and trusting God. When we say yes to God, we can leave the rest to him to bring in the finance and do the miracles. Mm. Uh, and so, Becky, uh, I know your website is onebyone.net. That's uh, all one word, onebyone.net. Can people financially support you there uh, and learn more about your organization at that website? Absolutely. Yes, it's all there on the website. They can either give monthly towards it or give one-offs all there on the website. Again, that's uh, one, uh, O-N-E, onebyone.net. And there you can learn more about uh, Becky's organization, One by One. You could also financially support and help these kids. We're thrilled that Becky Murray, the founder of One by One and the co-author of a book called Embrace the Journey, is going to stay with us. Uh, why don't you tell us again some more personal stories of what you've seen there in Afghanistan, the brick factory, uh, and what, what is going on on that side of the world? Yeah, of course. So it's it's Pakistan where our safe house is. And mm-hmm. so we started the work there after first going into a brick factory. And I was appalled that people in our day and generation can still be trapped in slavery. And these people didn't walk around in chains, as I would naively imagine, but they are trapped nonetheless. They're literally owned by brick masters. So they have no personal documentation, no idea of their own. They're literally owned by Brickmasters. Mm. And so I met one family and I said, well, how are you here? What happened to land you in this situation? And he said, well, 13 years ago, um, my wife and I were newlyweds and we were pregnant with our first child and everything was fine until she went into labor and then complications arose and she needed an emergency cesarean. And he said, I knew that if I went to the bank, I'd probably be declined because I'm a poor man. He said, so I did the only thing I knew to do to save my wife and my unborn child. And that was to take a loan from a brickmaster. So I said, well, how much did you take? He said, $150. So I said, well, you know, that's great. What happened? He said, well, we paid for the cesarean. Everything was wonderful. Um, That baby and mom healthy and fine through the surgery except 13 years later, here we are. And so I'm still looking at this couple and their now teenage son. And so for 13 years, they've been working seven days a week to pay a loan of $150 back. Oh, my goodness. Well, I said, well, how much do you own now? I mean, surely you've paid off $150 after 13 years of manual labor. And he said, no, now we heard $2,500. I said, how come? He said, well, the interest rate on the loans are so extortionate that no matter how many bricks we make a day, we will never, ever be able to pay the loan back. Mm. The problem is the loans are then um, passed on to the next generation. So on that same trip, I actually met third generation slaves who are paying off loans that their grandparents took. And so I'm here in this situation with people who not only themselves and their immediate family But their whole family lineage for generations to come will be trapped in slavery unless something changes. Mm. And so my initial reaction as a Westerner is, okay, let's do a fundraising page. We can get this cleared. I can't, you know, I can't do it for everyone, but our whole heart is stopped for the one. And 
maybe this one family, let's buy them out of slavery. Yeah. And um, they kind of laughed at me, this naive Western girl coming up with all these ideas. And they explained that for a blood relative, they can pay off the debt at the actual rate. But for an external person coming outside and trying to redeem them, it would be double, triple, quadruple, because in reality, the slaves are worth far more to the Brickmasters than the value of the loan itself. And so they also began to explain, we've only ever made bricks our whole lives. So our children have never had any education. It's not like we can walk out of the factory and get another job. We only know how to make bricks. And so it became apparent quite quickly, we need to do a work with children, start very young, start small. And so we've so far rescued over 50 kids out of slavery where they're now in a safe house, getting full-time education. Um, And the long-term plan is that once they've gained real employment, they can not only pay off the family's debt, but they can also sustain their whole families out of slavery. Mm -hmm. They can Mm -hmm. provide a home and food and everything for them. But I think the thing that broke my heart, Brian, is I went out there for the grand opening of the home and discovered all these kids that are still in slavery, the ones that Mm. we couldn't negotiate freedom for. And in that moment, my heart was so broken of what can we do? And so we made a promise that until we can get all the children out, we will commit to going in. And so every week we run Sunday school across 50 brick factories, uh, reaching over a thousand children. And so the very first thing that these children are learning to read and write is actually the Bible. Mm. And to bring hope and bring life into these type of situations is just what it's all about. And certainly our home in the North, this has been slightly different from the people trapped in slavery in the brick factories. These have been children who have fled the Taliban. And so I remember my husband met one little um, little pair of siblings or sisters aged nine and 11. And their parents had been killed by the Taliban. And so when he found them, they were actually living in a public bathroom. It was mm-hmm. the only place they knew to find shelter. And they were living off what the bakery was throwing out. So the out-of-date bread and cakes, the stale cakes, that's what they were eating. And so to be able to provide a safe house, not only for kids rescued out of slavery, but also kids that we've managed to rescue from the Taliban has just been incredible, to be honest. Yeah, Becky, it's unfathomable what you guys are doing. And I'm so grateful for what you guys are doing. Now, those of us who are just learning of this back here in the West, as you said, what what is a couple things that people could do today who are listening to help those in such desperate need all around the world? Yeah. First and foremost, every single one of us can pray. And Mm -hmm. so even this week, we've rescued three families from the Taliban this week. Um, And so praying for our staff on the ground, they're regularly getting death threats. They get beaten. I mean, just horrific things on the ground out there. And so praying for our safety, praying for the kids, praying that we can rescue more. But then also, if people want to become a part of it and and support it financially, they can do that via the website. So someone can sponsor a child that's been rescued out of slavery. Um, They can um, give a one-off gift. So right now, we're doubling the size of our safe house so that we can take in another 30 children before the end of this year. So they can give a one-off gift or an ongoing gift and, um, and be a part of it with us. 
And again, that website uh, is onebyone.net. That's onebyone.net. And Becky, before we let you go, I do want to make sure to highlight your book, Embrace the Journey. Uh, came out back in 2020. Um, people can go to Amazon and get Embrace the Journey. Is this, uh, is this book basically your story and more of the stories that we've heard? What would people kind of uh, learn as they read this book? Exactly that. So it's, it's my life story, a lots of the miracle testimonies of what God's done, transformation stories from a lot of our children around the world. Um, it's just full of, of what God has done over the last decade or so. Um, but I'd strongly encourage people to, again, buy that from the one by one website, because if mm. they do, the profits go back into the missions work again. Oh, that's great. Again, that website is onebyone.net. That's onebyone.net. The name of that book is Embrace the Journey. Uh, Becky Murray is the founder of One by One and the co-author of Embrace the Journey. Becky, it has been such a pleasure to get to know you and hear your story. We'll be praying for you as you guys do such important work. Thanks for joining us today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. And I am thrilled to be joined by Tyler Huckabee, senior editor at Relevant Magazine, co-host of the Cape Town podcast. Tyler, how are you doing today, man? Oh, I'm doing really well. It's it's really good to be back on, too. I love being a friend of this podcast. There you go. We love having you on. And people can find your articles at relevantmagazine.com. Yeah. Uh, and a bunch of them dropped this week. And I was just like, man, did he just like crank out the articles over <laughs> Labor Day weekend? But you said it's more of a planned thing and they all come out at the same time. So people can read four or five new articles of yours at Relevant Magazine. And so you make our life easy, Tyler. We just like to go through your articles because they're all uh, really fascinating. And let me start with oh, this one. Uh, the first one is cover story. Jessica Chastain thinks we got mm -hmm. Tammy Faye Baker all wrong. And when I first read this, I was like, this is where I want to start. Because a little bit of my background, Tyler, uh, I grew up going to PTL, the whole water park, amusement park, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. I oh, went there. Wow. I think I went there two or three times in my life. So I'm very familiar with this story. But but give us a little bit of the background to Tammy Faye Baker and also who Jessica Chastain is and then ultimately why she thinks we got the Tammy Faye Baker story all wrong. Sure. Well, you can you can maybe correct me on any Tammy Faye <laughs> errors yeah. that I make here. But uh, but Tammy Faye, uh, by the time she for the most of her life for the rest of her life, she was Tammy Faye Mesner when mm -hmm. she passed away. She she remarried. But for most of her life, most people know her as Tammy Faye Baker, who was married to Jim Baker. And for a while, there was sort of the 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 probably the hottest stars in the Christian televangelism circuit in, this right. in the late seventies and the early eighties. Extraordinarily popular. Uh, a very lucrative Christian ministry that they had in the South and really sort of the founders of the moral majority along with Pat Robertson and a couple other figures, but, mm -hmm. but extremely big deal. And, uh, and then it all really came crashing down overnight when Jim Baker was implicated in a number of scandals, both financial and sexual. Mm -hmm. So it became in many ways, the mother of all sex scandals in the middle of all of this, Tammy Faye was seen as sort of a, 
uh, I grew up with her at least. Uh, my notion of her was that she was a very ridiculous figure. Yes. Uh, she she was known for having very big hair. She wore a lot of makeup. She was very emotional on PTL, their, their TV show, uh, in a way that made it very easy to lampoon her as a joke, which is yeah. how even in my upbringing, which is very conservative, that's sort of how I thought of her. Now, Jessica Chastain... She's an award-winning actress. You've mm -hmm. certainly seen her in, in movies like Zero Dark Thirty uh, and Tree of Life. And she also grew up with the same idea of Tammy Faye of being a joke. But she came to see another side of that story, which was that Tammy Faye, while certainly a very interesting character, was also an extremely loving and generous person who showed a lot of empathy and grace to people. Particularly, she became sort of notorious for inviting people with AIDS on PTL. This was during the mm. height of the AIDS pandemic. This was mm. not something that anybody did, let alone that Christians were known for doing, was extending that sort of grace and welcoming presence to these people. And so Jessica Chastain bought the rights to the Tammy Faye story because she wanted to tell a different side of it than the one that most of us grew up with. And so that's the subject of a new movie yeah. called The Eyes of Tammy Faye, which comes out uh, about a week from when we're recording this, which stars her in the role of Tammy Faye and Andrew Garfield as Jim Baker. I'm totally going to go see that movie because, like I said, I grew up uh, – I remember them like, going to the water park and the theme park. Also, there was always – like right, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, you always knew they had the air-conditioned doghouse. That was a big <laughs> deal that everybody yeah. talked about. But like you said, she was a complete caricature. Saturday Night Live, in living uh -huh. color. They used to mock her crying and like paint coming off of her face mm -hmm. and all of that stuff. But I wonder, why do you think – um, it's important to understand the complexity of people, that there's more than just this kind of caricature of these people. Why is that a really important message for us to really wrestle with? Well, I think in the case of Tammy Faye, and this is something that Chastain talks about very eloquently in the conversation that I recorded for down for the article here, uh, there's a long history, both in the Christian subculture and outside of it, of taking women who have these larger-than-life, hard-to-define characters that don't fit easy into the boxes that we have for them and making a mockery of them so that we can dismiss them, so we don't have to take them seriously, so that the important messages that they may have to bring don't have to be wrestled with or grappled with. Mm -hmm. It's much easier to dismiss the joke of Tammy Faye than to wrestle with the notions that she had, the ideas that she had at the time. Now, obviously, given the benefit of hindsight, the grace and the uh, and the welcomeness that she showed towards AIDS patients at the time was something that, that I think most of society would say that we got that wrong, that we mm. as a culture, both as a church and as a just a country, should have done a better job of treating AIDS patients with respect and dignity than we did at the height of the epidemic. She got that right. We got that wrong. But we didn't listen to her because it didn't make any sense and it didn't work in, our, in the framework we have for how a woman was supposed to act. So it helps us today to think about what are some of the other people that we maybe think are trying yeah. to dismiss as jokes or as caricatures who may actually have something very important to say, but we're not paying attention because it's just easier to make fun of them and ignore them? That's really good. Again, that movie comes out soon. I look forward to seeing it. Uh, again, we just kind of jumped through your articles, so take it a right turn. About a week or two ago, uh, you wrote about something that Aubrey and I talked about on the show, uh, President Biden using the book of Isaiah to compare U.S. troops uh, you know, to profits and what are we going to do? Uh, so most of us by now know the story. I guess what I want to hear from you is why is this a big deal and why was this a miss by the president? 
Well, I think that in this case, the, the, the president has there's a there's a lot going on here with regards to his foreign policy, with regards to how the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan went. But at that time, what he was referring to with that Isaiah is I believe he quoted the prophet Isaiah who said, uh, who will who will go? Who will I send? Right. And Biden's words were. Uh, the military has been saying, send me. Now, I don't want to disparage any of the of our troops who I do really, who I have a lot of respect for and admiration for and appreciate. But that is not what that verse is referring to, right? <laughs> yeah, We're talking yeah. about a prophetic witness here. We're talking about people who are called by God to go share his message uh, to uh, which can be a message of love, can be a message of grace, a message of liberation for sure. But these aren't really the things that we send troops overseas to do, and there's a reason for that. So I, I think that this is what we do, and we and, and we at relevant. We were critical of when President Trump did this. We'll be critical of when President Biden do it, and we'll probably be critical of <laughs> of every president we have doing it until America is long gone. Uh, but conflating the message of the Bible with any sort of American policy is wading into really, really troubling waters. Yeah. And the church needs to be the first on the front lines to say, this is not what our message is about. We, we are not part of the empire of earth. We're part of the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Uh, you said in your article, you said elected leaders of both parties are fond of using biblical imagery to baptize their rhetoric with a sheen of spiritual respectab respectability or even design right. Just because it's normal doesn't mean it's okay. And Christians have been far too willing to allow that the Bible to be used as a political tool. I think that is so well written, man. It's something we talk about here often uh, that, that the church has to stand up and kind of reclaim its voice again. Tyler, another one of them that you uh, wrote this week is this. How Philip Yancey left toxic religion without losing his faith. Philip Yancey, a really well-known author, uh, I think his book uh, about 20, 25 years ago called The Jesus I Never Knew was one of the most important books I ever read at that stage of my life. And also, I think this gets into the topic topic of deconstruction and all this other stuff that we're reading about. So why don't you tell us about Philip Yancey uh, and this move where he says, I'm leaving toxic religion, but not losing my faith. Tell us the story of Philip Yancey. Yeah, so Philip Yancey, as you said, really one of the best we've got, I think. Just a, just a really excellent writer, really curious person, very generous uh, character. And, and I enjoyed getting to talk to him about his new book, his memoir called Where the Light Fell, which he told me was he felt like the book he was put on this earth to write. Um, and it really is just the story of his life, how he grew up in a, a very, very difficult circumstance. His brother, for most of his life, he was raised uh, by their mother. His father died of polio when Philip was only about one year old, if I remember correctly. Mm. Uh, some fr Christian friends of theirs encouraged them to encourage Philip's dad to get off the iron lung where he was for polio. And uh, because God would protect him if he went off the iron lung and he did, and then he died. So that was mm. his first brush with religion really was this very strange idea that, you know, God will protect him even if he refused medical treatment, which he, he did. And, and that did not end up happening. So for a long time, he associated religion with this very, very toxic element. And, uh, and it took him a long time, a lot of research, a lot of reading and a lot of experiences with the beauty of the world around him to come to see a different side of Christianity. I know it's been the experience for many people. They, they get to know Christianity through the worst parts of it, through some cultural baggage that has come to be associated with Christianity. And with his story, Philip wants to tell the rest of us uh, kind of how he got through and found a better, purer, truer version of Christianity and uh, hopefully point us in the direction for us to do the same thing.
That's great. So I guess the $64,000 question is uh, not only why did he stay in the faith, but how did he stay? What was kind of that process for him? So he said, and I, I don't want to give it all away because yes, that was my please, we want people to read. question too, and I want the, <laughs> and I want those clicks. But uh, but I'll tell you what he told me, which is which the why the why did he stay was that he found in in life through things like music, through nature, and even through his his relationship with his wife, his marriage, he found things that he really couldn't account for any other way. Uh, this this sense of wonder and mystery in the world that he had to attribute to something divine and in Christianity for him proved to be the path to that thing and that's mm-hmm. obviously his experience it's not necessarily everybody's but it what hearing that so, hearing that story for me and for I know many people who have struggled with how how do I stay and, and what parts of Christianity are true and real and which parts have been given to me and maybe aren't really don't need to be associated with it seeing him do that so well is very, very inspiring. And, and I think can point us in the right direction. And as he puts it, his, his process is ongoing. This has been happening his entire life. He's always been up uh, been wrestling with how to stay with what's true with, with how to go deeper into the faith. And he suggests that none of us should ever give that up. And, uh, and if you read his book, then you'll see how he does it a little more about how he does it. Oh, that's great. And all of his past books, all, like I said, Jesus, I never knew to what's so amazing about grace. They, they give a picture of that even in those books of just trying to search and search and kind of dig deep. So I, I encourage people to go get that at Relevant Magazine. Uh, all right. Your next article, how Gen Z will shape the church. There's a lot of thoughts right now coming out of a pandemic. I'm a pastor. Aubrey's a pastor. So we're constantly thinking and talking about this. Uh, help people understand not only who is Gen Z, because sometimes we could get boomer, Gen Z, millennial <laughs> uh-huh. all messed up. Who is Gen Z and how is it that you think they will shape the church going forward? So this article really came from a, and first of all, I should say Gen Z, um, there's different sort of, there, there are different ways to demarcate who that is. For the purpose of the article, I believe what we went with was the people born between 96 and 2012, but you can find different social, different people have different ways of measuring that. But for, for the general purpose, right after millennials, right before the people who started being born a little after 2012, you hear a lot of talk in churches about how to reach the next generation, mm-hmm. how to shape the next generation, how to mold the next generation. There's a place for all of that. But we wanted, wanted to know, how is the next generation going to shape us? Because mm. we know that Gen Z at this point, they're not just the church of the future. They're the church of the present. These people are in the church. They're starting to take leadership roles. They're in your youth groups and even beyond at this point. And they're ready to start doing some work. So what do they bring to the table that previous generations did not that's the question that we wanted to look into here with the, so the research that we do have on this generation and talking to a few uh, other Christian leaders who have already been involved in this and what they've observed. That's great. Again, I broken record. Go to relevantmagazine.com and you can catch that. All right. Let's save uh, you, you. What I appreciate about you, Tyler, is that you will wade into the hard stuff as well, the controversial stuff, uh, how the church can use critical race theory. Just those three <laughs> words, critical race theory. uh is the lightning rod of our day for many people right now. Uh, and so you you dove in. Uh, so let's ask you kind of broadly, again, pointing people to go read the entire article. How is it that the church can use critical race theory right now? Oh, this is such a tough one because I know people have a visceral reaction to, yes. the, to that those words. And I really do. I, I hope that what 
can only be said very briefly here. What well, can only point people to go read more either at the article or to read people who are actual experts because, you know, I'm yeah. a journalist. I'm not a critical race theory expert or anything, but I did talk to some experts for this and I read some experts. So so hopefully you can take my in my mind. Uh, I do believe that critical race theory has become sort of a boogeyman mm-hmm. in the church. It has been conflated with a lot of meanings that it doesn't actually have, that it does not purport to have. This is a very obscure realm of legal academia that has been propped up into something that is really not a, a that, that, that is never intended to be. And I think a lot of people who are involved in actual critical race theory are sort of mystified by why they become such a supervillain in so much discourse right now. But I do think that critical race theory has something to offer the church. And if we will understand it right, we can see it as a tool, not necessarily a new worldview, not a new way of understanding religion or ourselves or the world around us, but as one possible tool of many that we can have in our toolkit when it comes to approaching issues of race and of, in this case, justice and, and what it really means. And, and I hope that people at least my 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 question, my request, what I would like is to just give it a shot. Mm. If you've never actually delved into people who are who have championed CRT, who understand it, who have studied it very well, uh, who have maybe had a role even in developing it, give them a chance and hear what the other side has to say, because you might be surprised at what CRT's actual claims are. And you might be surprised at what it has to offer as well in terms of a historical understanding of how race has been used in American history to create certain laws and institutions that we still use today to the detriment of people who are not white. Yeah. So if you want to read more about any of these articles, but the last one we talked about how the church can use critical race theory, go to relevantmagazine.com. We joke that Tyler dropped all of these articles at once. That's because they're part of the new fall issue of Relevant Magazine. And so we'd encourage you again to go to relevantmagazine.com. That's relevantmagazine.com. You can also check out Tyler's uh, podcast called the Cape Town Podcast uh, and follow him on Twitter at Tyler Huckabee. Tyler, it is always a pleasure to have you on, man. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. I have a great time. Yep. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. I want to end the show today with a a little bit of... um, inspiration and challenge. It's kind of how we try to send you off. Uh, And one of the ways I enjoy doing that is just listening to preachers that I like, listening to preachers who challenge me. Uh, I want you to hear from Andy Stanley. Andy Stanley is the pastor of a hugely influential church called North Point Church outside of Atlanta, Uh, written many books, prolific. Andy Stanley's just prolific in his writings, his speaking, his leadership. He is a leadership guru as well. And as somebody that I enjoy listening to, uh, a master communicator and and is worthy to listen to. And he gave this talk. This is a, going back on a couple of years now uh, called Where Is Your Treasure? Asking uh, from Jesus's words, asking about how do we know what we actually treasure? Not what we say, but how do we actually know? Let's listen to the words of Andy Stanley. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, we got to think about this. You, you may have heard this before. Where your treasure is, your treasure is your stuff, your money, your, your things. J- Jesus says this, wherever your treasure is, 
your heart follows. Which means if you want to know where my heart is, don't, don't judge my spirituality by the fact that I preach on Sunday morning, okay? That, that I'm, this is just a skill God's given me and an opportunity you've given me. Don't, don't give me too much credit in this environment. If you really want to know where my heart is, you look at my check register and my American Express bill and my visa statement. You look at Quicken if you want to know where Andy's heart is. Yeah, but look at, look at all the, you should see Andy's Bible. He's got red and yellow and black and white and green and blue, and it's so used, and he just knows the word of God. <laughs> and God says, ah, that's just colored pencils. If you really, if you really want to know where Andy's heart is, come over here. Let, let's open, you know, let's, let's boot up and get quick enough. And I can show you exactly where his heart is, because his heart's where his stuff is, where his money goes. Jesus said that's true of all of us. No one, that would be us, can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Summary statement, you cannot serve both God and money. Now, I think, you know, first glance, you think he got it wrong. Jesus, don't you mean you can't serve God and the devil? Isn't that the proper contrast, God or the devil? Isn't this some kind of spiritual, ethereal thing out there? The devil made me do it. You know, that must have been Satan. Or, you know, is it, is it, isn't the conflict that I face every day God and the devil? Jesus would say, no. The conflict that you face and struggle with every day is God and your stuff. And you're going to have a master. And he would say to you and he would say to me, maybe more to us than some other people in the world. The struggle and the tension you will face is who is going to be your ruler? Are you going to serve your stuff? Are you going to serve the accumulation of wealth? Are you going to serve protecting your stuff and insuring your stuff and having more stuff and making sure your kids have enough stuff so your grandkids can have enough stuff? Are you going to serve stuff and hope that I will help you? Or are you going to serve and surrender to me? You can't have it both ways. That is a tension that will never, ever ever go away. So Jesus says, uh, you know, where your heart is, there your treasure is, so that, that we, can, uh, we can know our priorities. We can know what has captured our hearts. We can know our love by where our treasure goes, our money. But it's not just money. We often speak of this as money and possessions. And that's really important. I think of Randy Alcorn's great book called The Treasure Principle that's about money and possessions. That where we put our money, uh, what our checkbook and our bank account says that where we put our money is actually reflective as to where my passions are, where my, what has my heart. Okay. And that's hard. Now, you know, there are bills that have to be paid and other things, but if all of my money is spent on just me or me and my family, that says something. Uh, if all of it is on entertainment or bigger stuff or whatever else, where we put our money says what we believe about uh, what, where our priorities are here and what we believe about Jesus's words when he talks about um, sowing, basically uh, storing up your treasure in heaven uh, with things that will not rust, with things that will not be destroyed. If all of our money is going towards things that will not last, then that says something. So what's the, uh, but, but it's not just money and possessions. I would also say maybe our greatest treasure right now in our culture is our time. I think time is a greater commodity often for many of us than even our money. 
because time is finite. We all, regardless of your bank account, we all have the same number of hours in a day, the same number of days in a week, uh, the same number of weeks in a year. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a set commodity. And for that reason, because there's so many things pulling at us, time is often something that we will spend money to get back, right? Like uh, to free up in our lives. So what does your time say? If time is indeed a treasure, then what does your time say about where your heart is, about what has your heart? Is all of your time spent on uh, pushing your name forward, of furthering your name, of uh, bettering your own life. None of those things are bad in and of themselves, but is there anything in how we spend our time that says, uh, I, I am of the things that Jesus told me to be of. I am for other people. I am for the least and the lost. So Andy Stanley asks here, where is your treasure? And what does that say about your heart? It's to actually ask. We all say these, we know the verses. We know the answers. We know the Sunday school answers. We've all heard the sermons. But actually, when you look in the mirror, when you look at your checkbook, I don't know if any of us use checkbooks anymore, but when you look at your, uh, uh, your statement online, when you look at your calendar, how you spend your time, what does it actually say about where your heart is, about your priorities, about your treasure? Not what's the, not what's the, uh, the church answer. But what is actually reflective in our lives? I love these words of Andy Stanley because they convict, but they also point to a better way. It's not, you should not feel guilty about this. You need to understand where we spend our money on eternal things. When we invest our time in eternal things and in other people, that is an opportunity. That is an offer to something better. This is not the worst life. This is the better life. It's the better way to use our treasure of money and time and possessions. And when we see it that way, we're going to run towards it. When we see it as burden, we will, oh, I can't believe he's doing this again. I'm going to change the channel. Instead, opportunity, opportunity to bless others, opportunity to lay our treasure up in heaven. So grateful, really thankful for the words there of Andy Stanley. I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful that you joined us today. My co-host, Aubrey Sampson, she will be back tomorrow. We're excited to have her back. We hope that you join us from four until six. Until then, have a great evening. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.